0: People ask me, how was it when I got out, you know, because when you leave an institution, it's like leaving leaving the joint. When you leave the military, I would assume it's like leaving the joint. It really is, and I don't say that tongue-in-cheek, because first everybody tells you you're crazy, everybody tells you you're stupid, and then you leave and you're gone for a couple months, and then they call you and you go, hey, what's it like? You know, what's it like out there? I finally got my response, and my response was this: "It sounds pretty, you know, it sounds pretty hokey, uh, but the truth is, is, uh, I know, I now know what it means to be an American." You know, it's a good deal being a civilian in this country. Uh, I never knew what that was. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't say that lightly. I placed myself in, in units with jobs that for my entire life I was chained to that unit and that job. Everything that I did was scrutinized, not just by the private sector, but by the unit and that job. I was not free to come and go as I please. I was not free to make as much money as I wanted to for as much work as I chose. I was not free to speak freely. I was not free to do any of that. I sacrificed all that in order to do my job, just like everyone else that wears a uniform does. And so when they say do you want to know what it's you know what's it like out there, it's like it's pretty damn amazing to be an American in in this country. Be able to know what freedom truly is and that is to do exactly whatever it is I want and that's what I do now I want to start a business my brother and I want to start a business we start a business and here's the deal is that um, you know I never knew that and, and there's plenty of guys that uh, will never know that because you know they got killed defending my right to do this right now mine and my brothers right and they, they never even got to taste this sweetness that I taste on a daily basis whenever I wake up and go, if I don't have a client, they do want to stay in my pajamas. You know, it's, it's it's kind of a joke now. I sit out on the back porch, I drink my coffee and I Skype with Tom and that's how we have our meetings. He's, you know, just a few towns away and I don't feel like driving today. So I Skype, we drink coffee and we have a meet. It's uh, it's uh, it's freedom. I, I was one of the fortunate ones that, that got to see both sides of the coin.
1: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have two special guests on with me. Both guys are combat veterans from the United States military. One served in the Army, the other served in the United States Marine Corps, and they both come together. Uh, as veterans and as musicians uh, in a band in an all veteran band and they're doing some really cool stuff and we're going to talk about all of that today uh, i'm on with jay bradford and tyson uh, fellas how's it going
2: good how you doing man
1: great how are you i'm good man i cannot complain it's still, it's what like the second or third day of spring and it's like there's snow outside here <laughs> in new york
2: <laughs> buried buried in a wonderful winterland.
1: March Winter is always Wonderland.
2: the wild
3: card on the East Coast. You know, I mean, you really never know what you're going to get. It's it's the bipolar
1: month, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So so you guys, can we just talk a little bit about, you know, what it is that you guys are doing and and some of the... Uh, because, you know, both of you guys served for a number of years in the military, but you also have backgrounds doing music before you joined the military. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So... So on, on my side, um, you know, played in bands, started playing music at, at the age of five, really. And it was something that I always wanted to do. And I felt like it was my calling and, and the thing that I would be doing for the rest of my life. And ran that to about the point that I was 20 years old and decided, you know, it's not working. I, I haven't made it big time. And, uh, you know, I'm ready to do something different. And, and ultimately, do something that's more exciting, and they ended up joining the army, and uh, was in the Rangers for a while, and then uh, recon element within the Rangers, and then ultimately to uh, combat applications group in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, you know, and music even even while I was serving was always a part of my life, and it's always been a part of my life. But I started to later in my career I had a little bit more time, and and. Started kind of uh, dabbling into that a little bit more and started playing in another band and kind of putting that stuff together. And ultimately, um, you know, ended up here where I'm retired. And and now we've put together something that's meant to be a positive thing um, that continues to give back to the community that we came from.
1: And you guys, did you, you guys, so you guys didn't know each other when you were in the service, you met each other afterwards.
3: Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll I'll answer that question. Um, and, and real quick, just you know, music. Same as Brad, it, music was a big part of my life for uh, uh, really uh, growing up and and you know, kind of learn how to play everything from the piano to the trumpet and a handful of other things. And uh, found the guitar when I was about ten or eleven, and, and uh, <clears throat> uh, then you know, the, the grunge music thing was, was starting to happen and, um, started learning how to play those songs and, uh, found, you know, found my way in, into punk rock, uh, ultimately was where that journey kind of terminated. Um, but, but played in a punk band with uh, a couple of, you know, really close friends and, um, you know, life happens. And a couple of things kind of shifted on us and my plan to play music for, you know, for the whole shifted and I, I ended up getting recruited to play football in college and, and pursued that. And uh, that, that parlayed into a, a career in the military for, uh, for about 11 years, you know, went into the infantry, uh, was a platoon commander out of camp Lejeune for a little bit. Uh, and then uh, went to selection for MARSOC and spent uh, the last, you know, five years or so uh, working over there with one of the Raider battalions um, same as Brad, though you know it, the music never stopped. You know, I had a room in my house with a, a drum set and guitar and a bass set up, and my my buddy would come over and whenever we were on cycle, and we'd we'd stay up late and have a have a jam session and and play everything from Zeppelin and Sabbath to uh, you know Foo Fighters and and some more recent stuff. So uh, it, it was always there, always a big part of things. And so when I decided to get out. Um, I, I kept seeing, uh, Brad's posts on Instagram and I had moved back to my hometown and, uh, was just sort of reconnecting with the things that were important to me. And I, I wanted to serve my community, but I also wanted to continue serving the community that, that i had come from. Right. And, and specifically the Marsock community and, um, so what Brad was putting together, and and one day, uh, just out of the blue, I said, "Hey, I'm gonna send this guy a message and just see, see what I can do. Maybe you know we can vector some of the, the funds that he raises towards you know the Marsak Foundation or something like that." And uh, that that quickly turned into a a, a DM conversation, and um, he figured out that that I, I at least advertised that I could play the bass. We joked that I got on YouTube and taught myself real quick, but, um, <laughs> you know, but that's, uh, that's really where, where my connection, uh, to Brad started. Uh, and it's, it's been about a year now. So,
1: okay. That's awesome. You know, and you know, we were talking about it off air, kind of the, the, the way you can spread, you know, word of mouth through online and, and really achieve some success that way. Uh, it's, it's really incredible. Um, and I think it's something that's unique to the time that we're living in. But it's also kind of switching over to the more military side of it. Um, it's also what's unique about the times that we're in now is is the amount of deployments that guys can go on and how quickly they can be in a combat zone and then, you know, at home in a living room. And um, when you compare it to conflicts of the past, Specifically, World War II, guys were deployed for years at a time. And obviously, that's something that's tough to deal with. There's also a, a difficulty, in, at least for some guys, where one minute you're in Iraq or something fighting, and then the next minute you're home in your living room. And there seems to be a um, uh, an issue there for some people that it's difficult to make that switch. Is that something that you guys are familiar with at all?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, and I think ultimately that comes down to, uh, being able to compartmentalize somewhat and some guys are really good at compartmentalizing and some guys probably aren't so good at compartmentalizing, but I know for me, um, you know, walking out the door to go to work, to leave for a hundred days or so at a time, you know, was just incredibly painful. And, you know, leaving your kids and I had two young kids through, through most of my deploying, Um, you know, that was, that was incredibly hard to do. One of the most painful things I've ever had to do Uh, mainly the guilt that you feel because, you know, you don't, you don't even know these, these kids don't even know that it might be the last memory they ever have of you is walking out that door. And, You know, then being gone and trying not to think about, you know, what's happening at home and, you know, communicating sporadically when when you can and when you're not busy, when the hours line up and uh, time differences and everything else. And then, uh, magically, poof, you know, 20 hours later, you're sitting in your living room drinking a beer and, and your family and kids are climbing all over you. And it's a completely, um, Not sure if I knew the right word for it, but it's almost surreal, you know, going from one extreme to the other, literally on a combat op 20 hours later in your, in your family room, in your house, you know, with your family. So I think that's something that you're, you're definitely hitting a point there. Um, You know, I can understand the struggle that, that folks might have. And ultimately, you know, we're hoping to identify with people to, to let them know that, you know, Hey, you're not alone. And the things that you might be feeling and difficulties or dark times or anything else, you know, let us be the example. And, and we're trying to do something positive. And when you find something positive that you can go after and put your heart and soul into, it really gives you a great sense of purpose. And, and, uh, in my mind, that's really what it all comes down to is, is having this incredible sense of purpose. Yeah. You know, and
3: I think that, that moment, you know, that you reference, you know, sitting on the couch and, and just kind of wondering where you are and what you're doing and and the, the sudden transition. Um, you know, Brad talked about some people are really good at compartmentalizing. Some people are really bad at it. I would even take it a step further and say, some people are too good at compartmentalizing, you know? (laughs) And and I, I I think a lot of us actually (laughs) fall into that category, you know, where, where we, we become masters of it. And then we, we sort of refuse to acknowledge those moments when we say, oh man, some, something's off here. Right. And then we do the classic, you know, Marine or soldier, you know, sailor or airman in us. And we say, well, I can just drive on, you know, I'm, I'm a warrior. I can, I can get through this. And, um, which isn't a bad thing, right. But it, it, it is a bad thing if you don't know what to do with that energy. Right. And if you, if, if you take that energy and just let it sit inside while you're trying to figure out what to do with it, eventually it's going to boil over, right? It's it's like a, a a canister, right? And it's filling up with gas and you got to release some pressure every now and then. Um, and like Brad said, I, I think, you know, what, what all of us are doing here is is taking that energy and applying it towards something creative. We want to make something and we don't just want to make, you know, a business or uh you know physically construct like we're we're making something to hopefully reach out to other people and say look we we get it and and we created this vessel that hopefully other people can identify with um with that energy you know and that's that's where we want to take it and we want to we want to use it as as sort of a, a even if not inspiration but just as an example that it can be done and that you know music is just one way. Uh, and, and the world offers us a million opportunities every day to do something, you know, constructive and creative and, and, uh, positive
2: for, for the world around us. I had as an example, um uh, super close personal example within the last week, I had a homeless vet hit me up on Instagram and he was like, Hey man, I've never reached out for help. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I've, uh, I've been trying to work my way up to be able to, you know, live in a decent place and have a place to live and, and, you know, can never seem to get ahead of anything. And within 24 hours, I asked him where he was located. And within 24 hours, I was able to hit up some friends in the state where he's, he's currently residing and hook him up with two different job opportunities. And, you know, that's something that through social media or through, you know, whatever, I think the first step with anything, anybody struggling is to be able to, to be man enough really, or woman enough to stand up and say, Hey, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. But you know, that, that, that was a, it was incredibly fulfilling for me to, to know that I helped a guy out that was struggling. And that's that's just an example within the last literally within the last week. And there are almost daily examples of things like that that are that are happening as uh, as this thing progresses.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, with the whole uh, PTSD piece and, and TBI and, and people coming back from military service and, and having issues. You know, specifically, and I, I think a, a, a big part of why it's such a big problem is that. We are in the longest war that we've ever been in. So, therefore, and and we have, due to medical advances and and things like that, we have more people surviving wounds on the battlefield that they in past wars they would have not survived. So now we have more veterans coming home from combat uh, with wounds that people never survived before, and now they have to live with it. And kind of the the system, I don't think was was necessarily ready to deal with so many, you know, Americans coming back from these wars and, and and serving overseas. And then now, you know, we have this problem on our hands where veterans are committing suicide at a, an alarming rate. And in some places, some systems work, in other places they don't. And I think what really does help a lot of times when you have guys like yourself and Tyson who have served in combat and served for for so many years to come out and say, yeah, you know what, if you have an issue, it's not a big deal. You know, we can work through it, but you, you have to seek some kind of help. I think that makes such a difference because, and and I'm I'm sure you guys would know this better than I would, but you know, people don't want to seem weak or appear weak, you know? And I think just when you have someone with as much experiences as you guys have saying, look, it's, it's, you know, you're not weak. It's, this is, it's just kind of normal for somebody who's gone through what you've gone through. I think it makes a huge difference. And you, know, like you said, you really don't know who you're, you know, how many people you're affecting in a positive way, uh, you know, until people reach out to you and talk to you, but it's, it's really incredible. Um, you know, what, what these messages, uh, the effects of these messages can have on people.
2: For sure. And, and also something too, you know, it, it's, it's something that the military through whatever branch through whatever mechanism can do a better job of figuring out a way to, um, I don't want to say screen people, but it's almost like a leadership failure in my mind where, you know, guys that are struggling, you know, a dude who's, you know, maybe acting risky in some of the behaviors he's exhibiting and you know, to, to pull a guy aside and say, Hey, look, you know, I think you need to get some help. It's almost like, uh, you know, especially for promotion, imagine being a young E four and you've got other E fours in your platoon and, you know, everybody wants to get promoted and who's going to the school. And, you know, now this, I can't go because maybe he's getting yanked by his chain of command, you know, to seek counseling or, or to get some help in some way. And, and uh, you know, if not even separating from the military, but it's something that I feel like, um, is a is a huge failure on the, the Veterans Administration side of not being able to put a program into place where you, you can identify people and and help them in a way um, you know that's meaningful. Um, I know with you know retiring, it was like I was the first dude from my unit that had ever retired before, and when the door sw- you know swung closed that was it. You know, I'm, I'm out and I don't really, (laughs) you know, I didn't, I didn't want to take the time to figure out where to go on post to work finances. I wasn't staying in, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I moved to New York and, you know, it's like figuring out who do I call if I've got a a pay problem, you know, there is no finance here. Where, where do I go in New York city to see a a tri care cupboard doctor you know, it, it didn't exist in, in Manhattan when, when I got here. So, you know, it's I, I can understand where guys get out and they, they feel isolated and then they feel cut off. And there's probably some bitterness there because they do a great job of bringing you in and recruiting you. And they do a, a lousy job of, of sending you on your way.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's something to be that should be considered you know, on the on the higher level of like politicians who are making these decisions and things like that, where if we're going to go to war and we're going to send, you know, young Americans into harm's way. Yeah, you need to have the budgets in place and, and logistics in place so you can fight that war and win that war. But you also need to have the budget and logistics in place to take care of people when they come home. And and, uh, and like I said before, you know, just. Being at war for so long, it's the first time that the government has had to deal with this, uh, you know, at such a, a massive scale. And, um, you know, hopefully, I, I think, you know, as a community and with so many guys getting out and retiring and, and trying to figure out how to fix this, I think we're kind of getting better at it. But um, certainly it's not perfect. So, uh, Bradford, I just I wanted to ask you, how long were you in the Army total?
2: I, I did 20 years, so I retired at uh, 20 years and I think 18 days.
1: And was that all special operations?
2: Yeah, so I, I joined in, in uh, 1990, um, got to basic training at the end of 1990, and by April had graduated um, basic training, infantry, AIT, airborne school, and the Ranger Indoctrination program and then was uh, assigned to B Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion. So that was that was kind of my in the door, you know, right away. And I, I never left uh, the ranger community until I went to a uh, combat applications group.
1: So joining around that time and, and being in 3rd Battalion, um, you know, obviously in uh, the, the deployments and, and incidents in, in Mogadishu and Somalia, I believe it was 3rd Battalion that was deployed there. Um, You have some experiences there as well, right? Yeah. So that was my company
2: and uh, a platoon from uh, another company uh, that that went over in October. And, uh, yeah, that that was uh, an eye-opener, to say the least.
1: Right. And— you know, for the audience who's not might not be familiar with what we're referring to, that's the the Black Hawk Down incident. Uh, there was a book written about it, and obviously a movie. Um, and and really, that that particular couple of days was really just a a small part in a larger scale of operations that were being run uh, pretty regularly and and successfully, from what I understand, up until that p- specific incident. Um, and like you said, it was an eye opener. Obviously, for the for the young Rangers that were there and, and the um, the uh, CAG guys who were there, but especially for the American public, um, you know, it was kind of a shock for people to see that, you know, these kind of things taking place uh, at a time that even though there was conflict in the world, it wasn't like, you know, every day on CNN and, and in your face and that kind of thing. And I think it was just kind of shocking for people back home.
2: Definitely so. I mean, if I was to, uh, if I was to criticize anything about the book or movie, and of course they have to condense, you know, things that happened over months of periods of time into, you know, a a 90 minute to 120 minute format. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to do that, um, you know, and, and make any kind of logical sense and following a storyline and everything else. But if I was to criticize anything with the book or the movie, it's just that, Nothing other than, you know, that one specific mission was discussed at all. And there, there were a number of other successful operations, I think seven in total. Um, and then a lot of small stuff that was going on, um, you know, moving from point A to point B to just train and things like that and, and just the different things that you would see come across. But, you know, that that was definitely the highlight of it. And and the most important part of it. But there were a whole lot of successes that happened prior to, you know, things going sideways is on October 3rd.
1: Right. And if you just kind of watch the movie, you would just assume that that was the only thing that went down over there. And um, uh, but but certainly there were some successes, like you said. Um, so, Tyson, what year was it? You served for 11 years, but what year was it that you joined the Marine Corps?
3: Yeah so I I came in uh at the tail end of 2005 and uh <clears throat> made my way down to Camp Lejeune in uh late 06 uh it was pr- probably October of 06 is when I
1: I checked into uh First Battalion Second Marines. And was that and I'm sorry did you already deploy in the infantry before you went over to Marsoc or
3: I did, I did. So you know, Marsac has a, a requirement. You have to, and it's changed now. But at the time, uh, you, you know, you had to have deployed twice and, and uh, have at least three three years or so, uh, you know, time in service and, and a couple other requirements. Um, but yeah, so so I had gone to Iraq twice uh, with a with a platoon, um, you know, as part of the surge, and then uh, some of the the latter phases of oif just you know really just prior to the the marine corps um uh, withdrawing i think eventually in 2010 um but uh got to got to participate in in a little bit of oif before making my way over to marsoc
1: and marsoc at that time was just being stood up so it was really kind of in its infancy right
3: uh yeah it, you know 2006 is the uh is the official year i, I think when uh Secretary Rumsfeld sort of declared that Marsac was going to be a thing, um, and then uh, you know they they took first and second force reconnaissance and uh, the foreign military training u- unit and uh, and essentially created the the Raider battalions. At that time, they were the Marine Special Operations Battalion, so MSOBs. and then. Um, you know, Afghanistan was, was really the thing, but Marsak was really, uh, you know, biting off a lot of, uh, a lot of requirements and, and guys were doing a lot of really great work all over the world. I mean, uh, so pretty, uh, pretty cool to, to have, have shown up sort of in the, in the wake of, um, the early years and, and to have uh, met and been trained by and served under and served with, you know, some, some pretty amazing Marines and sailors who are, who are plank owners from that unit. So I, I consider myself lucky to, uh, to have been able to be in contact with a lot of those guys early on.
1: Right. That's awesome. And, um, so I haven't served for 11 years. So you've been out for not too long now, right?
3: Yeah, it's, uh, I think I'm coming up on uh, a year and a half right now. So it's been, uh, uh, quick and, uh, and not without its lumps, but, uh, you know, it's, I would say transition is a, a very fresh and, Uh, persistent and real thing for
1: me right now. Yeah. And the the transition part, and it was mentioned earlier, you know, when you're in these serving in these combat units, you know, you, you got, you have your purpose, you have your goals and, and we know what you need to do, your train ups and, and stuff like that. And I think with some of the issues that people have when they transition out is that they lose that sense of purpose and, um, and that's where things start to kind of go south for people. Um, but, you know, with with something like what you guys are doing, you know, you can take all that creativity and drive and work ethic that you had from your military service and and push it right into music. You know, it's it's obviously it's not the same as combat, but, you know, the the same work ethic and effort would, would kind of get you to success as it would in your, t- your time in the service. So... Who are the other guys in your band? It's it's not just you two, right?
2: No, it's it's, uh, not just the two of us. You've also got uh, Brandon, who's uh, our drummer. And he was um, a crew chief on Marine One, which is the president's helicopter. And uh, another another guy, uh, Jason Everman, who is um, a longtime ranger and special forces guy. uh, And prior to being in the military... He was a guitar player for Nirvana and a bass player for Soundgarden and then went on to play in, uh, I think, another band or two before he uh, joined the service. So, you know, there are some guys that have a lot of experience on the military side and the music side, and I think we all kind of are a big mix of of both, both of
1: those. Right. And, and Everman specifically, you know, with the, the experience that he had and in, in being in those two bands, and those are pretty big names, um, there, there's, a, uh, there's a picture of him. I don't know if it's like training or deployment, but I think he has like an M4 and it's like in some kind of winter environment, you know, he's like on a hill and it's like a meme, like you know, you might be cool, but you'll never be as cool as Jason Everman. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's one of those things where it's like, again, you
2: know, I think, I think for all of us, um, you know, music was a part of our lives before the military and we're, we're seeking, this might be hard to explain, but I, I feel like the music that I was creating when I was younger, didn't have the depth. It didn't have the balls. It didn't have it didn't have the, the angst and everything else that what we're creating now has. And it's almost like to make good music, I'm going to let you go figure things out, go join the service, go live through some horrible times and, you know, meet great people and work with people and live this great, you know, um, you know, victorious war driven uh, path. And, and then, And then come back and try and figure out how to, you know, make music out of that. It's almost like that had to happen. And I know, I know Jason feels very much the same way in that at the time, it just, it wasn't giving him the fulfillment. It wasn't the thing that he was supposed to do. And so coming back to it now, and it has a purpose. That's, that's kind of the exciting thing about it is that it's got a purpose and it has really, it's like a vision that's bigger than all of us, which is. We're using this as a tool to give back to the community and everybody that buys a song or downloads a song, you know, is going to end up contributing to the special operations community. And that's that's an awesome thing. I don't think that's ever been done before.
1: And so you guys are um, are going to be working with different foundations, right?
2: Yeah. So initially we talked about, you know, contributing to like each band member would represent um, you know, one foundation or dot org versus, you know, versus another. And, and I think just to keep it so that it's super transparent, here's the amount of money that we brought in based on music sales. Here's the money that went out the door towards these, these charities. I think we're going to end up contributing to probably just one, which is warrior's heart uh, and maybe a second, which is something that Tyson can talk about. But that's, that's probably something that like every year. And as we create more music, Um, you know, we'll continue to, to pick something else to, to give to, um, that's probably the cleanest way of doing it just so that we're not, and, and, you know, too, there are times when, uh, charitable organizations, you know, somebody gets audited and then people outcry about why is the CEO making X and and everything else. So, you know, as of right now, it's, it's warriorsheart.org and, uh, that's a physical facility that's in Texas and they they do wondrous things for veterans so if you haven't checked it out get on get online and check it out
1: yeah and warrior's heart that's a an organization that was created by a guy from your old unit right yeah tom spooner he's one of the co-founders
2: so um great friends with him uh personally and uh he's just an amazing human being but also, too, you know, what they've built there and the way that they're helping veterans. It's not just veterans. It could be first responders. It could be EMS. It could be, you know, kind of whomever that they're helping. But it's a, a very holistic approach. And they try and make sure that, that people are clean and sober before they start dealing with all the other things that they need to deal with. And that's, that's something, too, that's very common in the, in the veteran community is abuse, whether it be a chemical or alcohol.
1: But And, you know, actually, interesting enough, it was um, before I had started doing the podcast and, and everything like that, um, I saw a video where Tom Spooner was talking about PTSD. I think it was on YouTube. I forgot what it was for. It was for some, some company. But it was the first time that I'd seen uh, somebody with that kind of experience talking about it in, in such a personal way. And um, I remember him saying in, in a, at a point during the interview that, it it became easier for him to be in Iraq or Afghanistan on a deployment than it was to be at home, and I I just couldn't wrap my head around that. Like that just completely blew my mind, and and that really made me curious to want to kind of learn more about it and um see if there was a way that I could kind of contribute. and And that was kind of one of my inspirations was kind of watching that video of Tom Spooner. Uh, just just a little um a little cool bit of information, you know. So what was the other foundation that uh, you were talking about, uh, that Tyson?
3: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm just looking to raise awareness for, uh, it, it used to be the MARSOC Foundation, but now it's called the Marine Raider Foundation. Um, and uh, so they, they did a, a pretty cool merge, right? So the, the Marine Raider name, uh, you know, and there are probably a bunch of people who are listening to this that, that are going to uh, go sideways because there's a lot of, uh, back and forth about, you know, where the, the World War II Raider legacy really went. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to avoid that entire topic. But the, the the short version is that, you know, the, the World War II Marine Raiders were uh, some people contend, you know, the first American special operations unit designed to do uh, sort of uh, guerrilla warfare tactics behind uh, behind the lines in, in the Pacific. And... Um, you know, after a while they got disbanded and, and a lot of those, uh, gentlemen are still alive. Right. And, and so they started a foundation. It was, it was like a Letterman's foundation, kind of an alumni thing. Um, and since then they've, they've taken on projects like, um, uh, you know, creating, uh, uh, schools and stuff and some of the islands where they spent a lot of time during the war. Um, you know, and, and, you know, continuing to invest in communities that helped them when they were fighting the Japanese, which is uh, really incredible stuff to me. So last year, the Marsok Foundation, which is just true benevolent support to the, to the Marsok community, uh, and most specifically to the families, you know, it's, it's everything from, um, you know, transition support and grants to, to folks that are getting out to, uh, you know, taking care of families at, at the worst time, right, when somebody's been been wounded or killed. Um, you know, and, and most notably, and I guess most recently was, uh, the, the second tragic crash that happened in, in two years, uh, both of which affected second Raider Battalion, but, um, you know, a total of, uh, 14, uh, Marines and sailors were, were killed in, 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 uh, two crashes, one with the Black Hawk in Florida, and then the other with the C-130, uh, down in, in, uh, uh, Mississippi, I think it was. and uh, you know the foundation provided over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of support to the families uh, you know during that time, and that's what they exist for and it's a very small, very lean uh, organization, uh, you know one or two full-time employees, and then everyone else is a volunteer. Um, so the, the Marsak Foundation merged with the, the World War II Marine Raider Foundation. And, and so now the, the new Marine Raider Foundation sort of takes on all that legacy preservation underneath the old uh, sort of business structure of, of the MARSOC Foundation. And uh, just a, a really great organization, um, pretty awesome uh, uh, group of people. And, uh, you know, so if, if nothing else, I just want to raise awareness uh, and let people know that that's out there because I, I know, you know, that a lot of people uh, in my community when, when they say, well, Hey, you know, it's great to have you back, but what can we do to to help you? Right. Or, or how can we continue to support? Um, you know, I always point them in, in the direction of the, the Marine Raider Foundation's website, uh, which is just marine raider foundation.org. Um, and just learn more about it. I mean, dozens of ways to get involved. I actually just, uh, participated in the first annual Marine Raider challenge out in San Clemente, California with an old buddy of mine. And, um, you know, thrashed ourselves for uh, about 12 miles and some hills and did a 2k fin, And, uh, we actually got beat by a, a buddy pair of green berets uh, oh, yeah. who, who were, yeah, yeah. Pr- pretty awesome guys. But it was, uh, you know, it was just great to be a part of that. And, and my teammate and I raised, uh, a, a total of 11, uh, right at $11,000 and, and, uh, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, personally that all that money is going to go, uh, go back into the community and back to, to the unit and, and the guys and their families and, um, you know, being such a small group and, uh, and just having my own personal investment in, uh, you know, in that organization, I, uh, I can't say enough good things about it. And, uh, you know, just want to encourage people that if, if that's something they want to want to support then by all means, check it out. Um, you know, and, and hopefully through this music project, we can raise awareness and, and, uh, uh you know, push some funds that way. Um, you know, of note about the the Warriors Heart facility, I'd actually reached out to Tom, and uh, when we ran the the Raider Challenge to to try and split you know fundraising efforts and just go ahead and start you know driving towards supporting the Raider Foundation and uh, Warriors Heart, it didn't quite work out. Um, you know, timing and and just sort of some some admin stuff in terms of fundraising tools, um, but I do plan on running the challenge again next year and. uh I'm going to figure out how to crack that nut. Cause I, I, I have seen, uh, you know, in my own eyes, what, what a real, uh, what a real struggle that is, you know, and what a battle that is. And it's, um, you know, to I've actually seen the same thing you talked about on YouTube where where Tom talks about how it's easier to be deployed than to be home. And, and frankly, I, I think he speaks for a lot of people, um, at some point in their career. And, and so again, you know, what, what a perfect, uh, uh, what a perfect organization to, to support and, and go after, you know, cause, uh, their message like ours, I, I think, um, sort of transcends, uh, military service, uh, you know, first responders, you name it, right. It's, it's those moments of isolation that, that put us at our weakest and, uh, and helping people overcome that, you know, that's the most important thing.
1: So. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, you know, with you guys serving for for so long in the in the military, and and during a time where, you uh, we know, we're at war in in different uh, parts of the world, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have had different specialties and different kind of uh, training uh, under your belt. Can we talk about some of the things that you guys have done as far as like, um maybe schools you went to and, and things like that?
2: Yeah, we can. I, I think we can touch on that. Ultimately, it's, you know, how you apply the schools that you attend. How do you apply that to your real job? And and so there are, there are folks um, in the military that have all kinds of different schools and badges and everything else. But rarely do they apply them outside of their, you know, in the school. Right. And so, you know, uh, military free fall would be a great example of that. There are a lot, a lot of people that attend that course, but then don't go on to, you know, conduct military free fall operations as a part of their, their daily duty and responsibility on their team. Um, yeah, yeah. but I could, I could list off my, uh, DD two fourteen and all the schools and everything else, but it's probably pretty dry. It's like. Uh, yeah, Ranger School, Airborne School, military, all well, the next, you know, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Um, but yeah, I think applying applying the things that you learn in the schools that you go to, uh, special skills type of schools, um, being able to use it and apply it and and
1: use it every day is the important piece of that. Right, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm glad you bring that up because okay. uh, you know, having joining at the time that you did, which Obviously, you saw combat in, in Africa, um, but then after that, it, there wasn't a whole lot of conflict that, uh, you know, there were large deployments for and things like that. Do you think that some of that, and then, you know, you serving after 2001 when there was just a lot of fighting going on, do you think that some of that where guys might go to a certain school and then not actually use that? those skills that they learned from that school in combat do you think some of that has to do with you know the the pre-war military or it just depends on deployments and stuff like that
2: i think i think there's a combination of both i'm actually really happy that i got to serve during both peacetime, which sounds crazy to people now because it's been you know 16 years or, or so and you know or 17 years um you know it before before the war, um, you know, there were skirmishes, there was Grenada, there was Panama, there was Mogadishu, there was stuff happening in Bosnia, and then, then it was really kind of like ground combat. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have seen both sides because there's a versatility that I believe some of the guys that, that served like I did and during the time that I did have – that's that's just different than the guys that came in post 9-11 and not saying it's better or worse but kind of understanding you know the real military before there's a war and what it's like when the war kind of comes to an end two different things i remember early on in the rangers you know it was important to have really shiny boots and your beret is perfect and and your uniform's got to be super squared away and reciting the uh, maximum effective range of your weapon and how fast you could break it down and put it you know put it back into operation and you know all these kind of crazy things and then go to mogadishu and it was like man who gives a fuck about my boots being shined the right. attention to detail that i put into shining my boots really doesn't mean anything when you know the shit hits the fan and and things are sideways so you know anyway i i think there's something there. And, and also too, you had career instructors and that's something that, you know, we used to point out anytime you would go to an NCO academy, like, okay, I'm an E4 and I need to make E5. I have to go to PLDC and you would go there and all the guys that were instructing had literally done nothing other than be instructors in the army, even though they were combat arms guys. Right. Um, and so every, every kind of, leadership school you would go to same thing it was it was just you know a ton of dudes that had zero experience and they're the ones teaching me about how to be a leader in combat like makes no sense whatsoever so anyway i'm glad to have seen both sides and and that's something that i think made me once once kind of war started it made me a little more versatile and being able to understand the differences of you know going to a school or being able to apply what you learn, or what it's like, or you know, this is still the army, and there are things that you have to do, et cetera, et cetera. But, but anyway, I'm glad to have kind of crossed that line and and been on both sides.
3: Yeah, and I'll you know I'll, I'll kind of jump in, having obviously come in much later than the old man over there on the other end. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know, I, 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 as I came in, you know, the Marine Corps was still, um, you know you were still learning how to dump a a bottle of starch into your pants and iron them and, and, uh, you know, shine your boots and and all that stuff. And then, um, you know, and then by the time I hit the fleet, you know, you had these camis that you could just throw in the washer and you had, uh, suede boots and, and, uh, this whole, you know, the whole dynamic of, of what I had, uh, seen as the Marine Corps just prior to the war kicking off. Um, you know, and, and I, so I was at the Naval Academy at the time, right, and a freshman there when nine eleven 11 happened. I had an older brother who was uh, part of the invasion and uh, OIF-2 uh, also as an infantry platoon commander. And so I, I got to watch very closely as he went through all that and, um, you know, and sort of seeing this dynamic shift. Um, and then, you know, I spent the bulk of my time in that sort of wartime Marine Corps where those things didn't matter. And then, uh, there was this moment where the commandant at the time, and I, and I forget it was, uh, you know, previous to, to general Neller, I guess, um, if that's any indicator of how quickly my mind is, is dumping Marine Corps knowledge. Um, you know, they, they went back to this, uh, sort of back to the basics mentality and you started having to wear, uh, your, your service Charlie uniform on Fridays and, uh, certain units were excused from it, but uh, you know that basically meant everybody had to and um, you know the duty had to start wearing a, a service uniform again and uh, you know barracks inspections were becoming a lot more uh, 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 routine, and and, uh, they they started changing some of the the requirements for the officers of the day at certain units, and it just became a a much more regimented and much stricter Marine Corps, you know, and then you started getting into the tattoo policies and all this other stuff that, um, you you know, were we're organizationally, right, as the war is drawing down and more Marines are coming back, and, and Camp Lejeune goes from being a ghost town to being uh, slammed, and they've they've actually got to build new barracks and and office spaces to have everybody. Um, you know, even the policies start to change right at the top level and say, "All right, well, wh- what are we going to do with with this population of Marines who who uh, their only skills right were uh, the stuff they learned in the field? You know, and 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 sort of that sort of good order and discipline thing was really tailored towards." Um, you had more good field Marines, I think in some people's eyes than you had good garrison Marines, um, to, to kind of put it in that perspective. And, uh, and so it was interesting to see this, this sort of identity crisis in the last couple of years before I got out, um, as, as the Marine Corps was, uh, trying to figure out, well, what, what do we do now that we're not going to war all the time? Um, and ultimately, right. We, we just kind of found ourselves continuing to, to participate, um, and, and not even for the conventional guys, you know, they, they, they continue to, to go into, uh, really tough places in really tough spots. You know, I mean, the Marine Corps is still very much involved in Afghanistan, um, you know, and has been since, you know, since, uh, the, the, very early iterations. So, um, you know, it's, I, I think it's going to continue to go through these sort of life cycles, but it, it's been interesting to hear, you know, hear Brad talk about, um, you know, the
2: old days. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the age of Back the nineties. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, and seeing how, how it's, it's sort of come full circle and, and, you, you know, it, it's just going to be interesting to watch. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm also kind of glad to say I get to watch and, and not have to be, uh, on the hated end of, of some of those policies at some point. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> it was. It, there was a. Uh, there was a defining moment of change, and and for me personally, because I was there, um, I knew exactly when it was. And so, for anybody that that didn't serve prior to nine eleven, maybe they will understand a little bit better. You know, if, if I share this story, but even Mogadishu didn't feel like combat. Of course, October 3rd and 4th, when we were fighting for our lives, that, that felt very much like combat. But the time, the country, the military, it was all so different. And you know, I, I went to Bosnia two different times. That didn't feel like combat. It was you know a much different mission and other things were going on. But, but then went to Afghanistan and Afghanistan didn't really feel like combat. And even though we were doing good and great things for the country, um, it, it just didn't feel like war and crossing into Iraq during the invasion and taking offensive action against the enemy was something that had really never happened before that day. It was very defensive. It was, it was more like, Hey, we're here to do this job. And You know, make sure you're only shooting people with weapons if they're engaging you and et cetera, et cetera. Even in Afghanistan, there were guys, I remember sitting on a rooftop one night and a guy comes walking down the street with an AK 47 and me and my teammate are looking at him thinking, do we shoot the guy? Do we not shoot the guy? Do we shoot the guy? Do we not shoot the guy? And ended up being the chief of police of the small little town that we were in. Oh, wow. Um, But completely different when Iraq kicked off and it was like. This is war like there was a complete line of delineation from everything that had happened before that, even though they were combat deployments and even though, you know, earned valorous awards and other things in other places, it was not the same. And that that was, to me, the defining moment of war when war started.
1: And when that began, um, when Afghanistan began, were you still in the range of battalion or did you already move on from there?
2: No. So I was in the Ranger Battalion. I was in Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion from, I got there in April of 91. And I went to the Ranger Recon Detachment in June of 95. And then went to selection for the unit in September of 98 and got selected and ended up at the unit in uh, early 99. And mm-hmm. and then retired from there in
1: 2010 okay so right so 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 uh, when Afghanistan I was
2: I was in the unit for Afghanistan and
1: for other places right and 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 that particular unit was there from the very beginning in Afghanistan yes right okay so uh you know kind of switching back over to the the music stuff um do you guys have like a timeline of when you're going to be Putting stuff out, or or you guys aren't really sure yet, or
2: no. So uh, we we plan to drop the album this summer. Um, yeah. It'll probably be towards the latter part of the summer. Um, you know, continuing to kind of do the pre production recording and kind of dialing everything in and and making sure everything's right before we head to the real studio and do it for real. And um, you know, amazing opportunity to work with. A huge producer uh, in the music industry named Josh Goodwin, G U D W I N, who's produced everybody from Maroon Five to Justin Bieber to Brianna to uh, Jessica Simpson to I mean Celine Dion, Cher, uh, awesome. Will I Am, numerous others. This guy is is a legend. And um, anyway, we're going to be working with him to record the album in, uh, end of June, early July. And, uh, then from there it goes and it gets mixed and mastered and, and cleaned up and everything else. And then gets sent over to all the different, uh, music places that you can buy, stream, download, et cetera. So iTunes, Spotify, Apple music, every, every place that you would normally download or stream music.
1: That's awesome. Uh, I can't wait to hear it, man. And, um, you know for for the podcast every time I put out an episode i I have a um a band that I use their music and you know with their permission and um you know maybe when you guys have everything ready to roll I can use some of your music uh and some of the intros and um you know help drive some people towards it um so it, it's gonna be mainly like online like digital for the music
2: yeah for right now it'll be digital and I think the way that generally works is you have to have a distribution deal with physical music like CDs or vinyl back in the day or tapes or eight tracks. And, um, you know, we could get picked up by a label that chooses to, um, you know, distribute a physical copy of something, but that's, that's not in the works right now. And, um, whether that happens or not, you know, people will still be able to access the music, um, you know, through, through online places.
1: Okay, and if anybody listening wants to kind of keep up with you guys and and track your progress, uh, where can they go to do that?
2: So it's on uh, Instagram, and everybody kind of has their own individual account. My account is in the process of getting changed over from just my personal account to kind of band-centric account. And I still post things on there of all the band members, uh, some music things, um, apps. Action stuff from back in the day. There's a lot of that content on there and and a little bit of everything. So that's uh, the letter J underscore Bradford official on Instagram. And that'll be switching over soon to silence and light music.
1: Uh, but the switch hasn't taken place yet. So, And the, the silence and light, is that the name of the album or the name of the band? That's the name of the band. Awesome awesome that's pretty cool and tyson are you on instagram as well
3: i am uh staller s-t-a-h-l-e-r underscore six one uh you can find it through uh through the the page brad just uh reference but um you know mostly uh kind of same as brad mostly some uh some Corps stuff and a lot of music stuff and uh a lot of reposts right now but uh as we get further along in the you know, in the recording and, and production process, I'm going to I'm going to start upping my my social media footprint, I think. Um, but uh, right now, you know, I think if everybody just gets on Brad's, that's that's the place to go for, uh, uh,
1: you know, for all the uh, updates musically and all that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I love the name. That's pretty cool, man. Um, you know, so I, I want to thank you guys for doing this. And uh you know taking it out the time to to come on here and talk about this um you know I, I can't wait to hear the music when it's ready to roll and uh you know hopefully from doing this we can send some more traffic over to you guys and and um you know have more people ready for it and uh you know once again just thank you for coming on here and thank you for your service as well.
2: Yeah, thank thank yeah, you thank you for, for having us on. It's uh you know you're doing you're doing a huge service too so we we appreciate it on that end also
3: yeah it's a it's a great podcast i know uh i know everybody loves it so thanks for uh thanks for having us